0: The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey, everybody. I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I am a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books. I love to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, And I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. And sometimes I hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. Well, today, we have a return guest. You you heard him a few weeks ago offering his brilliant analysis on President Barack Obama's memoir... A Promised Land, and now he's back to talk about his own brilliant book of poems. It's called Finna. His name is Nate Marshall. Nate, good to see you again, bro.
1: What's up, man? Good to see you.
0: Now, last time you were here, you know, we started off with the coffee question, and if I remember correctly, you were drinking tea.
1: I was drinking tea, yeah.
0: How how about this week? You still on your tea kick? So this is, today I have a
1: turmeric tea, which is not, no no caffeine, but like, you know, anti-inflammatory, all that. I was going to say. I I drink coffee light. Once a year, so.
0: Exactly. You're making us all look less healthy. Is it too murky? Are you feeling okay? (laughs) Is that like a a preventative measure or are you trying to heal from like a a cold or something? No,
1: I'm I'm good. I just, I do it probably like once or twice a week.
0: Okay. That'll keep the Rona away too, I heard. Absolutely. So you're also, by the way, the first person to come on the show as a poet and with a book of poems. So as I was preparing for the show, I was like, I don't, do we read the poems? How do we talk about it? You know, because I I haven't really (laughs) interviewed people about books of poems very often. Yeah. But first, talk to me about your journey. You're you're, you're an English professor. You're an essayist. But, you know, you you wrote this wonderful review of the Obama memoir. But you also, as your primary writing vocation, a poet. So, yeah, I mean,
1: I sort of came to poetry pretty young. I was, like, in middle school. And I think I, you know, I just sort of started writing little things. And this was also around the time of, like, deaf poetry jam and all that. And so, you know, I, I saw Amir Barak on there. And I was like, oh oh, wow. Okay. This is it. I want to do that. And at the same time, I was also getting interested in hip hop. Right. Um, So kind of like that raucous era stuff, early Kanye, you know, which was a big deal for us in Chicago. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And all that. And so through that, had a teacher who like put me in the poetry slam, which I did not want to do, but ended up doing it, really loved it and kind of came in through that. When I went away to college, I like, got sort of, quote unquote, classically trained in it. And I, I keep telling folks, like, one day I'm gonna have to get a real job
0: and I haven't had to yet, so, <laughs> well, so that's cool. Uh, as a professor and a poet, you have two non-real jobs. So you <laughs> you got a lot of work to do. Absolutely. So uh, coming in as as a poet putting together a book like this, uh, is, first of all, the name, Fitna, I, I was struck by. Obviously, in the South, they say it. Up here, we starting to say it. Chicago, that's y'all, that's y'all first language uh talk to me about the title and and why you decided to have a book that focuses on the black vernacular
1: so yeah i mean in some ways like this book it kind of comes out of the journey of my first one so the first book is called wild hundreds which is uh like the far south side of part of the city of chicago i'm from one of the things i enjoyed about that book was the way in which the title was a signal to people right so you see like anyone especially anyone black from chicago who sees the words wild hundreds on a book they're like wait what is this and they start you know their eyes sort of perk up and they engage with it in a different kind of way. And so I was, you know, whenever I title things, I think about how do I get some version of that kind of reaction from whatever the audience I'm trying to sort of speak to is. But beyond that, I also think about, there was this thing that happened when I was touring the first book, right? So I was, you know, I was doing some small colleges in the Midwest and, um, and sort of all over, right? And often reading poems for like predominantly white audiences, right? you know, you have the the line after where you're engaging with people. And I kept getting this thing from non-Black folks where, especially white people, where they'd be like, oh, like your poetry is so good, whatever, whatever, but it's so sad, mm. right? That was interesting to me because I would really, I mean, I thought of the book Wild Hundreds as very, as very much like a celebratory text, right? Certainly there's difficult things in it, but it was like fundamentally like me sort of trying to put on for where I'm from in a way that I think like a lot of my favorite hip hop albums do. Right. And so coming out of that, I didn't want to answer back to that. Right. But I did have this sense of being misunderstood. And so I was like, okay, well how do I sort of use what I've learned from that or use that energy, not to speak back to this sort of like non-black, not even critique, but like diagnosis, but how do I actually like talk to my community and also make it very clear that I'm talking to them? Like, one of the things that I've been really, it's been really cool to see about the book since it's come out is like, whenever I talk to black folks, they always have some relationship to this word, right? If it's like, oh, this is like a thing my grandma said, or I had cousins who said it, or I used it in school once and got in trouble, or whatever, whatever, right? And that felt to me really rich, like a really rich place to sort of dig in.
0: And you, and you, you absolutely dig in. Uh, one of the places you start in this book, which I, which I found incredibly interesting was the section around the other Nate Marshall and really wrestling with your name, with your identity, and with almost other imagined selves, right? Both real in the sense of, you know, whether it's the white racist on the other side of town or or other possible sort of articulations of the past and the present of what Nate Marshall could be. Talk to me about that section and, and why it was important for you to wrestle with that.
1: So, you know, I, I don't think I initially intended on uh, writing a whole series of poems about this experience or this dude. So I guess like for, for the listeners, there's a guy named also named Nate Marshall who lives in Colorado, who a couple of years back was in like a primary for Republicans, like state house race or something. And it got uncovered that he had ties to like neo-Nazi groups and he got pushed out of the race. And, you know, this was around the time the first book had come out. And so I put a Google alert on my name so I could like catch interviews or mentions that, you know, that didn't like come to me direct. And I saw that and I was like, hold on, like fam, what? And at the time I was um, actually teaching the book, The Other Wes Moore. Which is
0: what I was thinking about when I read, I was like, I, I, yeah. I, I was like, this is why I'm not a poet because my my shit is corny. I was like, I would have called this The Other Nate Marshall. And then I was like, oh, it's because of Wes Moore. Okay, and then it, it all came. But I was like, it's an interesting yeah. it's sort of parallel.
1: Yeah, and so, right. So like, you know, I was I was reading this book and I was thinking about like two people who share a name but diverge in ways And, you know, in that book, like those characters are sort of relatively close in some ways, right? In a way that I don't think me and the, it's not a stretch to say me and the other Nate Marshall are not. But that did like, you know, spark my interest in a particular way. And so I wrote the initial poem, what I think is like the first one of that series. And eventually it became a kind of a motif I was interested in for the book, especially because, you know, in a lot of ways, I think the book is about harm about what it means to like be harmed or to harm and how one sort of steps, transforms from that or steps back from that or whatever, right? Like I owe a real debt to a lot of like abolitionist thinkers and organizers who I was in conversation with or just following the work of as I was writing a book.
0: There's a way in, in one of the poems where you showed an interesting connection between you and this other Nate Marshall that really stuck with me. You said, every time I've said what's good, nigga, It's possible we've matched our mouths symmetrical around the two G's in the middle. I won't lie to you, Nate Marshall, or to myself, Nate Marshall. I, too, have hated a nigga and lived a tweet to tell. I, too, have sat suspicious in my basement wondering who was coming from my country. I, too, have Googled myself and found a myself I despise. Man, I was running around the church when I heard that. (laughs)
1: I appreciate it. Uh, You know, so one of the things that I think about a lot in poetry... Um, And just in writing more broadly, like what it means to tell stories about people is I don't want to make anybody a monster, even the people who I have to like critique or indict or try to like shake something loose about, right? Mm -hmm. And, And certainly, like, I think if we're thinking about the sort of phenomenon of racism or anti blackness, especially in this country, you know, those things are shared, right? Like, they're not specifically the province of white people, even if they certainly white folks ways of engaging with anti-blackness have a, have a particular and outsized harm. And so, yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I'm always, like, in those poems, I think I'm trying to, like, yes, reveal something about him, but also reveal something about myself and also, like, think through what are the sort of ways that we are connected as a kind of human, as, just as people, right?
0: Yeah, and, and, and you also uh, unpack a sort of origin story for yourself and for your, your grandfather, your great-grandfather. Uh, that mm-hmm. takes us to the South, that takes us to Mississippi, that takes us throughout a kind of journey of what it means to be Black in the 19th and 20th century. How much of that was inquiry for you? How much of that was you figuring out who you are, where you're from?
1: There certainly was a lot of inquiry. Like, I think the way one does research for a book of poems is perhaps different than the way one might research for a novel in terms of world building or certainly a non-fiction like academic text. You know, but as I was like writing the book, I was doing, you know, family history and like lineage type stuff. And so that definitely informed those things. And part of the thing, and even part of the thing that sort of drove me to do the kind of like ancestry.com thing that I think, you know, has been popular for the last bunch of years was that I actually can't really trace my, so my my last name, Marshall, my grandfather was James Marshall, my dad's James Marshall Jr., but I can't really trace that name past my grandfather in part cuz he died when my dad was a kid, but also because he was raised by the father who he knew was not his birth father. And so everyone else in the family has a different name. And so you know, so I was in part just trying to like figure out like okay, who is this dude? Where does he come from? I know he comes from Mississippi, but like you know, who were his people in that sense? But it, it made me be able to go into this sort of speculative space of like, man, this dude could be related to me. I literally don't know. And, and often like so much of I think black folks relationship to family is is really enmeshed in not knowing. Right. Because we've had to live through so many traumas or experience so many historical traumas that have cut us off from lineage.
0: Mm. One of the things you do in this book is you use the N word, as they say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You say nigga a lot. And I, I find it quite quite engaging and brilliant, actually, some of the ways that you use it. Both the hard R, as in the, the piece of nigger joke, but also nigger in terms of pieces that are written for your niggas or using nigger sort of matter-of-factly as a stand and a proxy for all kinds of stuff uh, around Blackness and identity. Some people do that for shock. Mm-hmm. It seemed like you were far more intentional and nuanced with why you and how you were using the word. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know... With well, the last poets, they say what? I love niggas. I love niggas because niggas are me. Mm. And so that's part of it. I think the thing that really drove me to be a poet, aside from any, any of the, the other things I mentioned before, was just that I grew up a reader and I grew up with a grandmother who was a librarian yeah. and she was constantly using words I didn't know, know. And those words were both like, you know, just sort of slang and invented language. And they were also you know, sort of really elevated diction because she was a really educated person. And so as a kid, I sort of started reading the dictionary. My grandma would keep two dictionaries under the table and I would just read the dictionary kind of for fun, but also like whenever whenever she used a word I didn't know, I'd ask her what it meant and she would help me like sound it out, spell it and then look it up. And so I had this practice of engaging with words in a real particular way. And, you know, nigga is a word that has like so many there's so much there, right? There's, there's such a, a sort of rich and painful and deep history to the word. And I'm fascinated by words like that, words that carry so much and that are so contextual, right? Because, you know, like you sort of spoke to, the word nigga like me can mean such different things depending on who's using it or depending the context of the conversation
0: or whatever, right? Right. How do you navigate that in terms of Producing a book for a reading public that has its own sort of varying sets of politics around the word itself, right? There's people like me who who are sort of not immune to it, but certainly find it as a a powerful tool to advance to advance the conversation and just as a way of communicating. Other people who are almost religiously against it, in terms of the poetry community, I'm sure that there are people from Black Arts era who would be like, why is he using his word so promiscuously? And others who would say just the opposite, right? They'd be like, right on, keep keep going. Yeah. Do you think about that in terms of the, the various types of audiences, even the various types of Black people who will read your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I remember um, seeing um, Haki Mata
0: Booty, right? That's what I was thinking about, by the way, when I when I was, That's absolutely. literally who I was thinking about.
1: Yeah. So one of the last times I saw him, it was at a book release where we both read and the rapper Mick Jenkins was there too. And you know, he he performed a song and Mick in a song, like use the N word at some point. And afterwards, like hockey, like sort of got back on stage and like Debo the mic and was like, we need to stop calling each other niggas and call each other brothers and sisters or whatever. Which, yes, fair. Right. But I also don't think we can turn away from language without wrestling with what it is and what it does. Mm. Maybe this is naive of me, but I I I love the word. I think it's again, I'm like fascinated by it in part because I'm fascinated by the history, but I also think there's something so intimate about a word that you can use with your people or that certain people can use with their people that other folks can't or won't, right? In the same way that, like, I call my mama mama and other people don't. Yeah. People outside of our family don't get that privilege. And so, you know, I dig stuff like that, right? Like, when I call you noob, it means a different thing than you know, if someone just sort of out random in the world says it to you because we're connected in this way. You know, yes, like the N-word absolutely has a lot of particular pains that we need to deconstruct and understand and try to heal from. But I don't, one, I don't think we achieve that healing by looking away from it or by putting things in this sort of like bright red box that we can't use, especially as people that are impacted by the violence of the, those things. And two. Yeah, I do think that there is a kind of intimacy there, too, that I admit I'm hesitant to let go of.
0: That totally makes sense. You mentioned your your mom. There's a piece you have here that really introduces a section to me that really forces us to wrestle with gender and identity, and it's called My Mom's Favorite Rapper Was Too Short. Yeah. the section's called What's My Favorite Word, which, of course, invokes too short itself, right? Uh, I was listening to Blow the Whistle this morning after reading the book. <laughs> Against my will, brother, <laughs> <laughs> talking about that piece in particular my, my mom's favorite rapper was too short and what that meant because I, I found this to be one of my favorites in, in in the collection
1: thank you yeah I think first off that's a true ass story like you know <laughs> when I was a kid my mom played the song curse words and uh rapped every single word to it and I was shocked I was like this is the woman that was like that was like, yo, you can't say all the words, like, what's your fantasy? Like when she heard the song, what's (laughs) your fantasy? She like sat me down and was like, we have to have a talk. I'm like, and you rapping this craziness about like Nancy Reagan or whatever? That's cool. But you know, so first off, I have a kind of love and affection for that song, specifically and that music more broadly from my mom, or at least that's how I was introduced to it. But I also think again, right? Like we're trying to like build or imagine a different and better world and, I understand how these things are problematic, but I think that one of the ways that we have to wrestle with them is to, like, actually stare them down in a sort of clear-eyed way. I have to think about, like, my own investment in hip-hop culture and a lot of music that is, like, wild homophobic and wild sexist and whatever, right? And also, and not only that, but, like, I can't just discard those things in the way that maybe some people can because they were also a fundamental part of my... Identity formation and my political education, right? H- how do we sit within those contradictions right? That's sort of for me, like what that poem is is thinking about, right? Like we all want the radical reframing it helps our ass shake or whatever right we, we, do, we all do want this sort of way of being able to like not kill our darlings, right or being able right. to like let our nostalgia live right like I, w- I deeply want to listen to Kanye's first like three or four albums and not think of all the foolishness. Right. Or I want to, like, watch a different world and not think about the specter of Cosby or whatever. Right. You know, we can make it dis- make individual decisions about which of those things we can and can't and continue to engage with. But I do think we have to, like, be clear out about that desire because we can't we can't actually, like, move anywhere better if, we- if we're dishonest about the desire of it.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Desire is interesting uh, segue because another one of my favorite pieces in here was uh, With No Invitation. Mm-hmm. There's multiple ways of, I guess, reading this poem, but the piece is called With No Invitation. And you say, a boy is taken, but here's a question. A boy says yes, under what circumstance? Trick question, a boy doesn't say anything unless he's asked. Trick answer, she didn't know what to say. Trick answer, he's a shade of hesitant, but maybe he's game. There were so many layers for me uh, about this piece and and where I think you were going. Can you talk a little bit about what you were trying to do with that piece?
1: Sure. Maybe if I can, like, take a step back, right? I also want to be clear, for a bunch of reasons, we're talking about poems where I am sort of the eye in the poem. But I don't always write poems like that. And, all, and like, we shouldn't always take poems to be sort of autobiographical. My, these ones just right. happen to be. But, Fair. you know, in many ways, like, that poem comes out of this experience I had at summer camp. So when I was, I should say, when I was a kid, I went to these, like, summer camps from, like, age nine to, like, like, up until I went to college, Right. And they were always at these kind of elite universities and colleges.
0: Mm. It'd
1: be like three, four weeks long. And often I was the only Black kid or one of very few Black kids, right? And specifically like Black Americans, right? Like there, were, there would often be like some children, of immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. And so, that you know, it just like created a kind of weird and interesting subject position, right? And so that poem kind of comes out of this moment. I think I was like 13 or 14 at camp where i had like one of my sort of early formational like sexual experiences right and the thing that i realized about that experience like at the time it was it ended up being a whole thing which i i guess we're here so after after the thing the girl i think was sort of like talk like talking about it with her friends turns out her one of her friends ended up getting kicked out of camp for an unrelated matter and i think the the like RAs or whatever had heard about this so as this young woman was being like kicked out of camp they asked her about oh this thing about Nate and so and so right and she like said what she knew and I was on scholarship at this camp right I was a part of the scholarship program and so they told my scholarship advisor through the program who then called like told my mom and so I had to like have this very weird and uncomfortable conversation where my mom like called me and was like, what is this thing that has happened? Do-do-do-do-do. And it was like super traumatic, right? Like I carried a lot of trauma from this sexual experience and this kind of like, and the fallout of it, but it wasn't literally until I was an adult, like it probably in my early mid twenties. And I was, I'd always told this story, right? The story of this terrible, the like big fiasco that happened at camp as a kind of funny story. Mm. Of, like, a sexual conquest and then hijinks ensue. And what I realized when I came of age and, like, got a little more grown was oh, this was, like, not consensual. Like, this young woman, like, stepped to me and began to do things with my body without asking. And this was also, like, in a room where many other people were also in the room at the same time. And they kind of didn't know what was going on. Like, people thought it was a joke as it was happening which is maybe part of why I also was like, this isn't like some kind of violation. I'm still hesitant to use language like assault or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think in reevaluating that experience with more adult perspective, I had to wrestle with or think about, well, how may, for how many young men, like is this kind of the case, right? Where either older or more sexually experienced women are kind of initiating them. And often we don't code those things as the kind of violation that they are but we think about them as, as a sort of conquest as like, yo, I have so much game. I got whomever. Right. Like um, there, I remember reading an interview years ago, like Chris Brown. Right. And he talks about, I think like losing his Virginia to his babysitter or something. And I'm like, dog, yep. you got, you got taken advantage of. Right. Or, you know, R. Kelly has a history, uh, you know, in addition to being like a sort of terrible abuser himself, he has a sort of long history of abuse throughout his youth. And so that was the thing I was interested in wrestling with. And I guess the last word of that poem is "game," right? Yeah. I was thinking about all the sort of the things that we hold in that word, right? So, game in the sense of like, you know, how you like kick it to women. Game in the sense of the thing that gets hunted. Game in the sense of being ready for something, right?
0: Yes. That word did so much work in that in that poem, man. Maybe he's game. It shook me, man. I, honestly, it, it was so beautiful and so powerful. And there's a way that so much intellectual and political work's being done through those poems. We, we talked before when you were, uh, we were talking about the Obama memoir. You said Obama's memoir was long. And for you as a poet, you like things to be shorter, you like efficiency.
1: Yeah. The, um, what is it? The poet, DJ Renegade, Joel Diaz Porter, says this quote that I often like, tell my students, which is I take every word out into the alley. I ask him, What the hell are you doing in my poem? If the answer is nothing, I cut him and i think about that all the time
0: (laughs) wow i love that i love that i'm gonna use that as a model not just for i'm not a poet but but just as a writer there's something about there's something about that that i think is incredibly beautiful wow and powerful damn all right let let me let me let me ask you about a little bit about process for you yeah how does one go about the work of writing a poem right? I mean, you know, essayists talk about writing every day, you know, working with ideas, you know, historians tell me how they go in the archives, they dig up a bunch of stuff and then they they start plotting and organizing and writing. I know what my process is. For poetry, do you find it to be different than your other other forms of, uh, of writing?
1: I think for me, every poem sort of starts with a story I want to tell. And I think some of that maybe comes from like the influence of my grandmother, who was always sort of like, sitting with like with me specifically, though, also my sisters and like just telling us stories about growing up in Alabama or about, you know, this instance when she first started working for the uh, public school system in Chicago or whatever. And so that's really my kind of impulse. And I grew up like loving folktales and listening and reading those a lot. And then for me from there, the story things can get much bigger or much smaller. So like there are some poems in there that cover a 400 year sweep of history. And then there are some poems that are a literal, like single moment in time, you know, and and it really becomes like a meditation on a single image from that moment in time. Right. But I guess as a matter of like idea, that tends to be what one of the things that sparks me. Also, I think I'm, I'm sparked. And this book is, is a lot of that. Like I'm sparked by just language that I love. Right. Mm. So you know, words, turns of phrases, uh, various quotes. And so I'm it's, I'm often jumping off from that. But my I t- I'll say like my writing is a lot of revision. So like this book was, I think it went through 12 drafts. Woo. And then like even beyond that, yeah, like there are poems in here that probably have been worked over, reworked or rewritten a hundred times. And then there are poems that are like, Like there's a poem in here that's a version of a poem I wrote when I was like 16.
0: Oh, wow. So do poems get cut as well? Is it just that you reshape poems until they're ready? Or do you also say, you know what, this just isn't redeemable and you just throw stuff to the the side?
1: Oh, yeah. Poems get cut a lot. Like that's a big part of the revision for me. So like when I wrote the sort of zero draft of this book, I think I wrote to like 120 pages or something in the Word document. And then I cut it down to like 70. And then Mm. I wrote back to like 90. And then I cut it down to like 80. Yeah, there's a, I'm, I'm like pretty ruthless about being like, this doesn't work, bye. Maybe it'll end up somewhere else.
0: Wow, do you, um, do you write every day?
1: I do not write every day. There have been points in my life where I have. One of the things I tell my students is that I think poetry is, is a discipline of noticing. And the thing that I fear about writing every day, at least for myself, I can't speak to other folks, is that if I'm always thinking about, oh, this is gonna make it into a poem or whatever, if I'm, if I'm like, doing that constantly then i won't always like live enough in the in the set of experiences to then be able to later on like take a step back because as i'm going through it i'll be thinking how do i make this into the poem right and i found myself when i was younger i think often doing this right which which in some ways was clarifying especially when i was a very young person that was like a clarifying impulse to understand like, Oh, poetry, whatever I do in my life, poetry is going to sit at the center of it. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to like be going through life and be like on a walk with my partner and thinking about how this is going to make a beautiful sonnet. I just want to like go on the walk and like connect with her. And then maybe later on when I come to the page, it'll play out there, but Uh, But just to like take some pressure off of how I live life. But I do, I will say, I do think, again, like I have an expansive vision of what it means to write, quote unquote. And so given that, like I write every day in the sense that I do something in service of the work every day. Right. So I read every day for sure. I listen to a lot of things. So like I've listened, you know, like I'm a big fan of this podcast. I listen to like dozens and dozens of podcasts, you know, just all sorts of things. And I'm constantly just trying to find stuff to pay attention to, because for me, that's a part of the writing. But I, I don't like compose words or cut stanzas every day.
0: What do you read? What, what kind of stuff do you find to be most uh, inspirational, most compelling, most generative?
1: Mm, I think my reading tends to follow my interests rather than follow like sort of genre prescriptions. As a kid, I loved history. I loved history and like nonfiction, in part because I, I felt some vague responsibility almost to like learn about the world and about what had come before me. Like I recognized I was young and that I didn't know a lot. And I think that impulse still sort of holds true. So I still read like a, quite a lot of biography. And then, then it just, it's sometimes a matter of like what I'm working on. Right. So right now I'm teaching this class about like hip hop and literature. So I'm reading a bunch of uh, like hip hop kind of adjacent books, sort of in prep mm. for that and just to be able to engage with my students and like offer them more context. But yeah, it really varies. It really varies.
0: There's a bunch of people listening to this podcast, including yours truly, who want to write poems. Yeah. We're scared. We, we want to write poems, but we're afraid they're going to be bad. Or we like me, we know they're bad, but <laughs> we believe that one day we had the ability to write one that's good. Give me some advice, man. How, what, what do we do? Where do we start?
1: You know, here's an exercise that my partner was using for her class that I really loved was just like find a pe- an article of clothing that is like valuable to you, that has a sort of story, whatever, and meditate on that thing. Mm. But I think p- for me, part of the, especially with poetry, uh, maybe this is true of all forms of writing, but because I think that the writing really happens in the revision, I think that most, if not all of your first drafts are pretty bad and myself included. Like It's very rare that, I, that a poem resembles much of what the first draft looks like for me.
0: Yeah.
1: And so given that, you, you can't be afraid to throw clay. Like What we do is sculpting. It's not painting, right? It's not, it's not taking a blank canvas and putting stuff on it. It's seeing a big piece of rock and chipping away. And so you just got to like be cool throwing some stuff down. And if, if you like, I think just try a form. Everyone doesn't write sort of formal poetry and I, I use form in various ways, but just try a form and like make it a kind of game, right? Just be like, cool, I'm gonna write a sonnet. I'm gonna use this rhyme scheme. I'm gonna have 14 lines. Like, let me see what I can do. Or I'm gonna try to do something like a ghazal or something like a pantoum or whatever. Cause I think sometimes the challenge of that, like, like the use of forms, the use of that kind of structure for me is to, to make your mind think in ways that you wouldn't
0: naturally think. Part of it is that it sounds like getting over the fear of writing a bad poem it's almost like you're inevitably going to write a bad poem until it's not a bad poem anymore i'm hearing you say yeah i mean
1: just like let it let it be okay for it to be bad like what like if you yeah i don't know if you were like cooking or if you if you were like learning any other skill you would be not great at it when you started more likely than not and you're sort of okay with that cuz you understand that to be a part of the process of getting better but i think I think a lot of people have like a really messed up, like a really traumatized relationship with poetry specifically. So we, we worry that like we're going to write bad things and that somehow that bad writing is like, is a read of us into, as an intellect or as a... Absolute.
0: Our creative ability, our artistic ability, our intellectual ability, all that stuff. But why, why do we have that kind of fraught relationship with, uh, with poetry as opposed to other genres?
1: Because a lot of times when we're first taught poems in school we're taught them as like non-mathematical word problems. Mm. And, you know, and they're not, and a lot of them aren't like intuitive to to most people. And so you begin to think like, oh, I'm defective because like, I remember I I didn't understand meter for a long time, right? Like through grad school, frankly. And I often thought like there was something wrong with me for not being able to like hear iambic pentameter or whatever. And then I kind of like, I actually, I wrote an essay about it and it was, the process of writing that essay was helpful. It's like, oh, well, part of why I don't understand words in this way is because for me, words have been a malleable thing, right? Because my grandma might mispronounce a word or might pronounce a word in a variety of different ways. Or like, you know, I come from a tradition of hip hop where we're constantly like mispronouncing or pronouncing words with certain accents or sliding words so that they rhyme in various ways. And so the idea of a, a word having an immutable like this is a hard syllable. This is a soft syllable. Doesn't make sense to me, and there's good reason for that, right? Right. But yeah, I think I think I think a lot of it is just like how we're taught poems, how we're introduced to them. Like even the poems that I loved as a kid, I didn't really know were poems. I just thought that they were like cool, sort of almost like m- songs without music that right. that one could do.
0: Right. Dope lines, dope, dope, right. dope stuff to say. Yeah. You know, right. you talked about kind of being turned on to poetry through the deaf the deaf poetry scene. You know, most deaf on HBO. Uh, also some of the slam poetry stuff. I'm sure was in the mix. I too was a sort of opened up to the world of spoken word. You know, I came of age around the time when Love Jones comes out in 1997. I come of age, you know, when when the Black Lily in Philadelphia, you know, is doing its thing. And for for in addition to the Roots and Jill Scott and Erica Badu and all that, there was also a huge part of that that was connected to spoken word. And we were all like obsessed with it for a while. We all watched it on TV. We all wanted to go to the slams. We all wanted to be a part of it. But I, I wonder, while it opened up doors for some, did it did it narrow our idea of what poetry is? So that everybody thinks a poet talks like this, and, and <laughs> you know, like, and for some people that's very trite and and not very interesting. Did it overtake much of 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 the written word? Did it overdetermine sort of what poetry could look like for young? young Black writers. I mean, what did that movement do, both good and bad, in your estimation, for for writing, for for poetry? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think it was good in the sense that a lot of kids who maybe would otherwise have wanted to be rappers have been interested in, like, being MCs because that was, you know, a kind of dominant, uh, and still is, like a, you know, like a sort of dominant cultural force or cultural figure. Um, Realize they didn't have that much rhythm, but they could write (laughs) and they could, like, build images and tell stories. And so they were able to, like, do some stuff. I think that was really good. You know, in a lot of ways, one of the things that I really will always sort of love, specifically like youth spoken word and sort of spaces for young people for is that they did this weird inversion where it became kind of, it became cool to be, to do things that might've previously been coded as uncool, right? Like I remember being in high school. And lying to my, when I was on the freshman basketball team, lying to my teammates about writing poems and then being, like, exposed because...
0: I Meaning you lied saying that you weren't writing them when, in fact, you were. Right. I was like,
1: I'm, I, was like I don't write no poems. Like, what is that? Whatever, whatever. And then, um, you know, like, some of the guys on the team's girlfriends came to an open mic, and I, like, kicked poems at it. And they went back and told their... They're like, oh, like, your teammate Nate, he's so good, whatever, whatever. And... There And then, like, it was a point where I think before the city championship or something, the coach asked me to, like, kick a poem for the whole team. And people, like, show respect. And so, like, there's this weird inversion in which I think things that could be uncool or be, especially for, like, young men, they had some social capital. And I think that that was really great. Also, like, those spaces for a lot of young people, myself included, I think were really important in our kind of political education, right? And how we came to to see and think about the world just from a political perspective. Like, I don't think that a lot of the sort of organizing and, you know, political outgrowth in this era of Black Lives Matter happens the same way without um, spoken word and specifically you spoken word that really kind of takes root in a bunch of these cities in the late 90s and into the 2000s. I just don't think those things look the same, to be honest. So I think those are like some definite goods. But yeah, I mean, certainly I think, yeah, there are, there are ways in which it can narrow the, the idea of what a poem is or what a poem can do. Or you get a sense that all your poems have to be political or have to have some kind of, you know, radical political statement at the center. And that might not be your ministry as a poet. Like you might be... <clears throat> Someone like, say, a Lucille Clifton, not that her work has no political import, but, you know, in many ways, like, her, her work is, I think, in many ways, shines the best where she's able to sort of give us, offer us sort of life observations, right? And even the most powerful political statements in her stuff, like, come not from some notion of, like, her being an activist or something. They come from, like, her being like, this is, this is me taking stock of my life, taking stock of the world as I'm, as I'm experiencing it. So I think that that is definitely a challenge and I still, you know, do a lot of work with young people and I'm often trying to do things to like break them out of their modes. But, uh, you know, I also think that so much of that is just a big part of maturing as a writer and maturing as a thinker is like learning how, how to sound like yourself.
0: Do you sound like yourself?
1: I try to, I definitely am a shadow of the people who influence me, but you know, I think I've begun to, to like, step into a kind of, into my own sort of thing, hopefully.
0: Before you go, let me ask you a question. If you were left with the collection of three poets, you could be on an island with three poets, their work. Who do you choose?
1: Damn. Okay. Um. Hmm. The first one that came to mind was American Journal by Robert Hayden, which is the last book he wrote in his life. Like, I think it was published maybe a year before he died. But that book is incredible. And the, the title poem of that book, the, the book opens with this poem that's like a, a letter to Phyllis Wheatley. Mm. It's Phyllis Wheatley writing to this other enslaved person, um, who's a real person who she like had a correspondence with. So it's, it starts in the voice of her, and then it ends in the voice of like this uh, the title poem is this, this poem in the voice of like an alien who's come down and is like observing America. And that shit is, man, that thing is. That book is a heater. So that book for sure. Damn. Um, maybe Martina Spada's Alabanza.
0: Ah, uh,
1: yes. Yeah, which is a, a beautiful joint. And then... Tell me, ooh, tell me what you like about it. The, the title poem of that for me is like the... It's the best poem about the sort of trauma of 9-11. And that really excavates something about how to write politically with a kind of heart that leans towards people. Mm. So, yeah, I'll say that one. And then Blessing the Boats, which is uh, like Lucille Clifton's sort of collected, selected piece. She just has so many bangers. And she's such a master of like the short poem. Like um, she has this poem, Why People Be Mad at Me Sometimes, which I feel like everyone should read because the poem is is tight. It's maybe a sentence. And every time anyone reads it, they're like, yep, that is, that is what it is, especially anyone who has any experience of like being a writer. And being sort of challenged, challenged based off of what you write, right? So like, if you've ever written something and people are like, that's not how it happened. Actually, Ronald Reagan was a great president, or that's not how it happened. Actually, the, like your mom talked, actually, like when you were a kid, you never wanted for anything or, or whatever, right? It, it just, it perfectly encapsulates that feeling of being sort of misunderstood or, cha- or being challenged on one's memory. Mm. So those three.
0: Wow. That was impressive, man. You know, I, I don't know if I could whittle down the body of poetry that I find so helpful and, and, and honestly that makes life more livable down to three. But you did it in a way that was that was powerful. That's why you a poet, man. You, you got that. You got that <laughs> thing down. Bro, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And again, man, Fitna is an excellent book. I encourage everybody to go out and buy Fitna by Nate Marshall. Nate, how can people get a hold of you on social media?
1: At uh, Illuminate Mike's on everything. Illuminate. And then M-I-C-S, all one word. And uh, yeah, get in tune with me.
0: Dope, dope, man. Can't wait to talk to you again. I'll see you on the show soon. Everybody out there, I'll see you next week. Peace. Peace. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. That's Coffee, A-N-D, Books Show. Also, you can buy all the books that I've been discussing here at bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's or you can go straight to unclebobbies.com. That's uncle, B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com.